0: Yeah, thank you for the kind introduction, Ryan. Thank you for the invitation, Ulrike. Um, good evening, everyone here and also online. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to discuss my current research project with all of you here at the Tibetan Related Studies Seminar in Oxford. So, um, of course, I state the obvious um, when I say that for a researcher like me, who's mainly concerned with Bhutan and the Himalayas speaking in Oxford, where i Eris firmly established an excellent and at the same time diverse tradition of Tibetan and Malayan textual studies in Europe is an honor but at the same time naturally a bit intimidating. In the spirit I think that it would be a good idea not only to present today the work in progress of my current research project which is an investigation into identity and nation building in 18th century Bhutan but also to follow up on what I personally read as Michael Ayres' main agenda and lasting legacy regarding research on Bhutan, namely the first substantial and very systematic attempt to recalibrate from the South our historical perspective on what we usually call the Tibetan cultural area or Tibetan cultural sphere. And what you see here roughly suggested on the map. So. Um, not only, the, of course, the Tibetan the region within the PRC, but also parts of Western China, Bhutan, the Indian Himalayas, Nepal, Mongolia, and the former Soviet Union, depending on the point in history we are looking at. In general, it is important that we think of recentering research on Bhutan, despite the partially shared history and culture with Tibet, and differentiated clearly from research approaches and textual sources that have a more... Central Tibetan, or Mongolian, or Eastern Tibetan, or even Qing perspective at that core. I'm convinced that only if all those perspectives from different source materials come together, we will have a more accurate and comprehensive view about events in Tibetan history at large. So for today, let us, for a change, take a perspective that understands Bhutan as the center. Today, in the first part of my talk, I will briefly introduce Bhutan's religious and political history between the 17th and 20th centuries. To begin with, such contextualization is crucial for our discussion, as in fact Bhutan's development path is not only vastly different from Western nations, but also from the rest of the Tibetan cultural area. Then I will present key features of my analytical framework from the field of religious studies that focuses on social differentiation processes, epistemic structures, and identity, and that operationalizes my historical philological research on the Bhutanese empirical materials. In both the second and third part of my talk, I will introduce different empirical materials, so the textual sources I use, explain the historical and social context context, and how I approach them to address the issue of identity and nation building processes in Bhutan from different angles. Based on these examples, I will show how crucial the multidimensional relationship between religious doctrinal identity socio-cultural identity, identity policies, and the entangled history for Bhutan for these processes of nation building were and still are. More in detail in the second part, I will turn closely to the 18th century that I interpret as the formative period and critical juncture for identity and nation building in Bhutan. I will introduce the Bhutanese legal code from 1729 and related textual sources but also activities on the ground that provide important insights into how identity policies and collective sociocultural identity building substantially supported nation building. Then in the third part, I will zoom in on the individual perspectives, the identity and agency of (laughs) Bhutanese Buddhist masters, as important intermediaries in Bhutan's entangled history with Tibet, quite turbulent history with Tibet. Here, I will exemplarily look at doctrinal, but also autobiographical and biographical sources written by those Bhutanese Buddhist masters. And finally, I will close with sharing some brief reflections. My talk today, thereby, will cover parts of the introductory chapter of my next monograph addressing methodology historical background, textual sources, and key actors. And naturally, I'm very happy about feedback and a good discussion with you all. A quick technical note before I start. As common in Tibetan textual studies, I have transliterated classical Tibetan terms in Wylie and used for the few Sanskrit terminologies the international alphabet of Sanskrit transliteration. However, I spell Bhutanese and Tibetan names and places according to Tonatus and Germanus, simplified phonetic transcription and st- of standard Tibetan. Moreover, to avoid excessive referencing and name dropping throughout my talk and on the slides, There's a comprehensive bibliography with all the primary and secondary sources that are the basis of my talk, and I'm very happy to share it if you're interested in that. Now, providing first a bit of historical background in the Tibetan cultural area in the First half of the se- 17th century, three Buddhist governance established the so-called joint twofold system of governance. This form of Buddhist governance was, in Bhutan still is, characterized by a very intricate relationship between the societal spheres of religion and politics, but also law and economics. At first, Huchan was founded under the rule of a charismatic tantric Buddhist master, Shaptun Nava Namgyal, here after Shaptun, in 1625 26. Then we have a little later in 1642, Tibet under the fifth Dalai Lama, which is for sure the most researched on of these governments until today, and Sikkim with the Buddhist king, Punsok Namgyal. Do they have a little spirit somewhere inside? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Halloween, <laughs> with the lights. <laughs> these three governments. Bhutan, Tibet, and Sikkim, while all going back to earlier, Tibetan and Indian political thought and societal idols, though, had significant differences in their respective institutionalization and organization laid out, for example, in their respective legal courts. In Bhutan, under the unifying figure of Shabdung, two branches of the government were institutionalized. The regent of Bhutan was supposed to exercise political power, while the chief abbot of Bhutan overlooks the religious institutions. Here, this Buddhist form of governance is symbolically depicted on a Bhutanese school painting. We see Shaptrung in the center, with the regent and chief abbots of Bhutan standing slightly below on each of his sides. As such, I understand this form of Buddhist governance not just as a dual government, as it is often translated. It is important to emphasize that the two branches of religion and politics, differentiated though in many ways, are still joined together, sometimes symbolically, of course, and sometimes institutionally, by the overarching figure of a Buddhist master or a Buddhist king. Also equating this arrangement with a theocracy, so ruled by God, literally, or a hierocracy, ruled by priest. Uh, may be tempting from our Western perspective, but falls too short. It is necessary to identify and describe more in detail the exact nature of this joint, united aspect in those different forms of governments in Bhutan, Tibet, and Sikkim. In addition to complicate matters, as most of you well know, we have quite different terminologies in the Tibetan language that were often not randomly chosen or just interchangeable. As in the Bhutanese case, there's a clear preference for chosi Songjuk. I began to translate in my publications as joint twofold system of governance in kind of abre- abbreviated form. And in a more comprehensive form, when I'm talking to other Tibetologists, as today, I would translate as joint twofold system of spiritual-temporal or secular-spiritual or religious-secular or religious royal governance, depending on translation preference for true and see and historical context. I indeed think that it really matters which ethic here English terminologies with a sometimes century old burden of implicit and often even unconscious Western cultural connotations we use to describe our empirical cases. This is also a is- An essential first step when we want to employ less Anglo and Eurocentric analytical frameworks, a point I will come back later to in my talk. Then, when we move forward in time since the 17th century, Bhutan underwent two significant changes in its political organization and institutions. The absolute hereditary monarchy was introduced in 1907 under the first king, Erwin Wangchuk, And in 2008, Bhutan was transformed into a constitutional monarchy under the fifth king, Namgyel Wangchuk. We can therefore say that Bhutan, in fact, undergoes a very recent democratization process as a Buddhist constitutional monarchy that is guided by the ideas and policies of gross national happiness. Very. Simplified, but to get an idea, cross-national happiness is an alternative sustainable development model and path that rests on four pillars. Good governance, sustainable socioeconomic development, preservation and promotion of a vibrant culture, and environmental conservation. After this brief introduction into the history of Bhutan between the 17th and 20th centuries, I would like to address more in detail how I then developed my analytical framework to investigate identity and nation building in Bhutan. The crucial point to consider when we are looking at nation building in Bhutan is that this joint twofold system of governance has been existing uninterruptedly from the 17th century until today as a form of institutional social differentiation, but also epistemic structure, of course, today in a very transformed and modernized way. Under epistemic structures, I understand here, for example, Bhutanese and Buddhist emic taxonomies, classifications and knowledge systems that are underlying social structures and that can be diachronically traced as influential for the development and change of those social structures over time. These, for example, include concepts of Tibetan Buddhist ethics, rule, territory, societal cohesion, and so forth. As we see here, Shapto's joint twofold system of governance was explicitly renewed in the constitution of the Kingdom of Bhutan in 2008 and is today represented by the fifth king of Bhutan as a head of state and as a Buddhist. Therefore, many of the Western Edic terminologies commonly used in our research field are kind of imprecise or insufficient, at least, in describing not only the complexity of the pre-modern governmental structures in Bhutan in the Tibetan cultural area, but also, and that's even more important for my work um, in this project, today's presence of tantric Buddhist epistemic structures in Bhutan that are grounded in a non-Western cosmological order. Another crucial aspect to consider is that the example of Bhutan is unique insofar that despite being heavily influenced, of course, by the British Raj, Bhutan itself was never colonized and therefore is the only country in the Tibetan cultural area that still possesses the structural and epistemic continuity as a nation state, as Sikkim and Tibet do not exist anymore independently as a nation state. In that sense, Bhutan's history is beyond the usually employed binary of colonizer, colonized and postcolonial studies, and embodies a third option of nation building in Asia, so to, so to speak. Consequently, this makes the systematic investigation into transcultural entanglements that have been influential in Bhutan's oh landscape landscape in progress and its identity and nation building processes even more interesting. As such, Bhutan is also part of the research field that deals with religious constitutionalism. A recent publication complains that in contrast to research on, for example, Islam and constitutional law, Buddhist constitutions, or what the authors call bureaucracies, have been studied relatively little until now, and this even though Buddhism had indeed been very formative for the constitutions of several countries in South and Southeast Asia, such as Thailand, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, or Sri Lanka. All in all, this should make clear why it is not satisfying to just simply call Bhutan's joint two-fold system of governance today a theocracy, a hierocracy, or a theocratic monarchy. As here in the UK, there is quite the stronghold in the field of Tibetan legal anthropology and practices with several well-known experts such as Professor Piri or Professor Weitross, who's hopefully online there, I would be very interested to hear about their experiences and maybe also similar struggles with some of the quite imprecise English terminology stemming from Western originally Christian legal systems. I would also like to add here that it seems like contrary to us in the field of Tibetology, other academic disciplines such as religious studies have already much more comprehensively addressed and also explicitly discussed the challenge of amic etic distinctions and decolonization of analytical frameworks in translations. See, for example, also the discourse about loose approach of translingual practices. It is with all these personal reflections in mind that I have developed an extended analytical framework that aims to go beyond the limitations of the Western eddic frameworks and terminologies I encountered. To begin with, my work has been strongly influenced by my longstanding research association with the Center of Advanced Studies in the Humanities and Social Sciences Multiple Secularities Beyond the West Beyond Modernities at Leipzig University. The research approach of the multiple secularities project and the intense discussions with mainly religious studies scholars working on very different regions and religions in Leipzig were immensely helpful to identify and describe more precisely functional and structural differentiation, social structures, but also the influential underlying epistemic structures in the society spheres of religion and politics, in Bhutan from the 17th to the 20th centuries. In brief, the research approach of multiple secularities understands boundaries and boundary negotiation processes between different societal spheres in pre-modern and non-Western societies as either actual functional and structural differentiations or more cognitive epistemic structures. As a result, it can trace and document in a more comprehensive way diverse global secular religious arrangements that are purely called in this project secularities. One of the greatest contributions of this approach is therefore that it goes beyond the, until recently, more dominating Anglo-Eurocentric perspectives on secularization and modernization theory. As The results of this collaborative research group with more than 70 scholars globally, having been participating over the course of the last eight years, will be published in 2024 in the seven-volume Sourcebook of Global Secularity. It presents primary source materials from all regions of the world in translation and with introduction and annotations. Besides my two contributions on Bhutan, there are also several other really interesting articles by scholars from the field of Tibetan and Mongolian studies who took on the challenge of developing and using these new research approaches. By adapting now this research approach of multiple secularities for my empirical case of Bhutan, I could better carve out the meaning behind the Bhutanese emic terminologies in the textual sources that I had identified uh, in my text critical research. I was then able to describe the above mentioned pre-modern social differentiation processes between the spheres of religion and politics, but also partially law and economics, along with the underlying epistemic structures within the joint twofold system of governance more accurately. In a second step, and from a diachronic perspective, I identified what I call areas of interest, so important markers where boundary negotiation processes within the structure of the joint system of governance had taken place in Bhutan over time. This means that, as a result, I kind of better understand Bhutan's development path, so to speak, the bits and pieces that are part of this process. In some, in that way, I can describe more accurately the complexity of the relationship between different society spheres in Bhutan in the past, but also the relevance of tantric Buddhist epistemic structures in the present, which allows for a more systematic comparative perspective in conservation and um, talking with other scholars and other disciplines that is also less Eurocentric. So much for now about my analytical framework that operationalizes my work with the actual empirical materials. Let us now in the second part of my talk turn to empirical materials and more in detail to the 18th century. To understand why the 18th century is such a crucial time for identity and nation building in Bhutan, we have to return once more to Shabdung, the founder of Bhutan in the 17th century. His assumed death in 1651 was kept secret for an incredible time span of over 50 years, disguised as a secret meditation retreat. Similarly to the situation of the fifth Dalai Lama, whose death had been concealed by the regent Gatsu for a period of at least 15 years. So at the end of the 17th century, to put it in Michael Aris's very poignant words, I quote, we are faced with the odd situation that during these years, the Tibetan and Bhutanese states were both ruled by corpses, in a manner of speaking, quote, end. When Shatun's death, was eventually disclosed at the beginning of the 18th century, sometime between 74 and 77. Naturally, as Shapton had been such a charismatic Buddhist ruler and tantric master, he left behind a substantial power vacuum with serious struggles about his succession. Consequently, to counter the long lasting negative repercussions and following instability of both political and religious institutions, identity and nation building, played an extremely important role henceforth. We can deliberate efforts to strengthen deliberate efforts to strengthen a new Bhutanese identity in various societal areas, with, for example, identity policies addressing religious doctrinal, but also socio-cultural identity. Examples of these identity policies to tackle crisis and foster national integration are the codification of monastic and civil laws and administration, the commissioning of religious and political histories, patronage of mass manuscript and block printing projects, the building of monasteries and standardization of higher monastic education, but as well highly innovative early public mass media, we could say, in the form of stone wall inscriptions that John Adussi has pointed out as very particular to Bhutan. Furthermore, we find the enforcement of a new Bhutanese dress code and social etiquette and hierarchy. These identity policies we find also richly documented in the Bhutanese legal code from 1729 that was composed by the 10th chief abbot of Bhutan, Tenzin Shogel, on behalf of the 10th regent of Bhutan, Pamwangpo, However, we should not imagine this work just as a dry legal codex, but as a work that conveys important Buddhist ethical principles and a political philosophy embedded in Tibetan Buddhist tantric cosmology. It is ornamented by numerous vivid quotations from other text genres, such as Buddhist canonical and extra-canonical works, advice literature for hulas, proverbs and sayings, and former verse stories of the Buddha. Therefore, the actual rules and regulations are legitimised by referring to well-known images and symbols of the glorious earlier Buddhist governments of Tibet and India ergo representing what I define as epistemic structures. This was, of course, an effective means in creating meaning and authority within the Buddhist polity in Bhutan at the time of strife, crisis, and discord. It should also be mentioned that this Bhutanese legal code from 1729 is a standardized version and very closely related to some earlier Bhutanese textual sources dealing with either monastic or civil law, as well as conceptions of Buddhist governance. Christoph Kupas, for example, has also comprehensively uh, compared the Bhutanese legal code with the Tibetan region Sanya Gyatsu's guidelines for government officials. I've listed the earlier Bhutanese sources here, as you see. First, this is Shaptun's personal seal, which is called the Sixteen Eyes. Shabtung and also the later Bhutanese regents used the seal for communicating their religious and political authority over the territory of Bhutan. Then another source would be Shabtung's early monastic code dated to 1629. And the third source would be the first Bhutanese legal code, so to speak, that is called the Golden Yoke and found on three now damaged black slates at the Punakatsong the fortress of the old capital of Bhutan. It was only very recently reconstructed and translated into English, and we see it here on the photograph on this slide. As such, those black slates you see here are indeed, again, an interesting example of identity policies and of early public mass media. Fortresses in Bhutan have always been important public places for the religious political and military elites together, for example, for religious and communal ceremonies and rituals that were supposed to protect the Buddhist country and its populace. Similar to Shabjong, who had earlier used stone inscription and causing Buddhist ethical behavior, law and order, and of course allegiance to him, the golden yoke was publicly visible. As such, the Golden Yoke should be understood not just as a text in which rules to be followed in society are laid out, but as a material object, constructing and mediating meaning and identity and visibly claiming and legitimizing Drogba rule. Another important aspect of the Bhutanese legal code from 1729 is that it draws sharp boundaries towards Tibet and the common Tibetan heritage. Also very explicit. As a background, Shaptung had escaped the Bhutan Bhutan, to Bhutan roughly a century before in sixteen sixteen, due to an unresolved incarnation dispute with the Tsandisi about him as a hierarch of Walung monastery. This had eventually resulted in the split into two Drukpa lineages the Northern, Ergo, then Tibetan, and also later Nadaki lineage, and Shaptung's Bhutanese new southern lineage. At the same time, this had led to the foundation of the state of Bhutan, but also to warfare between Bhutan and Tibet for roughly a century thereafter. As a result, the originally-owned religious doctrinal identity as Bhutanese was newly constructed and we can say even reinvented to legitimize also political rule. The Bhutanese legal code from 1729 provides important insights into this prominent but very gradual and actually quite messy shift from a purely religious doctrinal to a more sociocultural and then finally political interpretation of Drukpa that is also denoting the official Bhutanese national identity today. On the slide, we see an early example of this religious and political self-identification as Drukpa, expressed by Shabjung on his personal seal, the above-mentioned 16 eyes, who proclaims I am Djokpa, followed by a very provocative set of claims to legitimize his new rule in Bhutan. It is not surprising, therefore, that many of the emic terminologies and taxonomies that express Buddhist epistemes of the societal spheres of religion, politics, law, and economics in the Bhutanese legal code from 1729 have been abundantly appropriated to establish today's constitutional framework and the ideas of and policies of gross national happiness. Moreover, the ongoing in, in the ongoing democratization process, we find them prominently discussed in academic but also public discourses. To sum up, the Bhutanese legal code from 1729 and related historical sources are extremely valuable in providing not only a collective perspective on identity and nation building in 18th century Bhutan, but also on the transformation of the joint twofold system of governance over time until actually today. Now, in the third part, I would like to turn more in detail to the aspect of transcultural entanglements of between Tibet and Bhutan documented in the diverse joint travels of Bhutanese and Tibetan Buddhist scholars from both Drukpa Kagyu schools throughout Tibet from 1740 to 1748. In general, the previous scholarly work in Tibetology, Tibetan studies has, of course, addressed transcultural encounters, mostly in the context of what is called borderland studies and mostly focused on the Tibetan Chinese, Tibetan Mongolian or Tibetan Nepalese interface. However, systematic research about the Bhutanese Tibetan interface that is at the heart of my current research from both an Amic Bhutanese, but also historical and diachronic perspective focusing on identity and nation building has not been carried out. Consequently, my research seeks to disentangle Bhutan's complex histories with Tibet and surrounding powers such as the British Raj. Today in my talk, I, of course, focus on the Bhutanese primary sources. But I would like to mention that in particular for the later Bhutanese-British entanglements beginning in the second half of the 18th century, I'm also at the moment consulting in the British Library documents from the East India office records and private papers. Now, as a background, In the mid-eighteenth century, Bhutan and Tibet finally, after roughly a century of warfare and political hostility following Shabdung's flight to Bhutan, entered into a carefully mediated reconciliation process through far-sighted political and religious figures on both sides with new transcultural exchanges. Characteristics and positive outcomes of this reconciliation process were, for example, the reopening of Tibetan religious sites for Bhutanese, the exchange of students, cross-linked literary production and joint religious ceremonies, Bhutanese-Tibetan diplomacy through charismatic Buddhist masters, and restoration projects with shared Bhutanese-Tibetan patronage, which John Adosi has pointedly called temple diplomacy. We can see one beautiful example of such Diplomacy on the scroll painting. It shows the Tibetan region Pulani, a crucial political figure in the reconciliation process on the Tibetan side, with his two Bhutanese wives, whose families actually had fled from Bhutan after Shabdung's rule began in the 17th century. It belongs to a set of paintings commissioned by him that depict eminent Buddhist masters from both Drukpa schools as a symbol for this new reconciliation process, let us quickly recall, there had been a quite bloody split into the Bhutanese and Tibetan branches of the druk Kagyu school not too long ago. As an immensely important further step now in this reconciliation process, the second Dioli Tolku druk Mikodorje, Kunga Dorje, one of the most important figures on the Tibetan side, traveled with a group of Bhutanese students, among them the later 9th, 12th, and 13th chief abbots of Bhutan, extensively through Tibet. Drogba Hungar Nikodoroji was indeed an excellent choice, as he was the Tibetan inter- incarnation of the so-called madman of the Drukba, Drubpa Kunle, who is extremely popular in Bhutan until today as a type of Buddhist tantric practitioner best known for demonstrating their spiritual realization in very unconventional ways, to say the least. This, of course, made it easier to act as a Tibetan intermediary in the still very tense relations between Tibet and Bhutan at that time. He's a person depicted here on the upper left corner with a dark head. And this is actually, to my knowledge, the only visual representation of him that I am aware of. On these travels, we have to imagine those Bhutanese students, masters, later masters, being enrolled in one of the most prestigious higher monastic colleges in Tibet, namely Drepung, receiving important transmissions from different Tibetan Buddhist lineages and famous Buddhist masters, visiting sacred sites, but also meeting with important Tibetan political figures. These transcultural exchanges also elicited new struggles about their religious doctrinal identity and the exact positioning, doctrinal positioning towards the Tibetan branch of the Drukpa Kagyu school, despite a partially shared lineage of Buddhist masters. We clearly can place how the Bhutanese scholars consecutively juggled this and constructed a new Bhutanese religious doctrinal identity by explicitly drawing boundaries towards the Tibetan Drukpa Kagyu school. This is exemplified in a fascinating cross-linked literary production of one root text and different commentaries from both Tibetan and Bhutanese Buddhist masters about the Mahamudra controversy, which is a crucial controversy in Tibetan scholasticism that began in the 12th century with the immense critique of one of the most eminent scholars of the Sakya school, Sakya Pandita. Today, I won't go into the nitty-gritty details of complicated Tibetan doctrinal debates. However, regarding my research, the important thing here is to understand that the religious doctrinal disputes of these Bhutanese masters at the intersection of religion and politics, and also at the intersection of Bhutan in Tibet, are a concrete factor in reinforcing identity and nation building. In any case, if you would like to read more about Bhutanese perspective on Mahamudra and religious doctoral identity building, you are invited to also consult my monograph, and that is also available in open access. For the remaining time, I will now turn to the autobiographical and biographical writings of these Bhutanese Buddhist masters. These texts, indeed, provide us with a great variety in formality, individual perspectives, and different cultural backgrounds, and are therefore very valuable. Here, it's important to keep in mind the function of biographical and hagiographical writings in the Tibetan cultural area as important sources documenting history from very different angles. Therefore, to obtain a better picture of identity and nation-building in Bhutan in the 18th century, I analyzed these sources together with other historiographical sources, such as the above-mentioned Bhutanese Legal Code from 1729. Moreover, as you all well know, we find in biographical or hagiographical writings a great variety in both form and style, such as narratives, dialogues, poetry, songs, and letters, but also great variety in content, apart from what we could call the main narrative about the life of a specific person. For example, we can find historical and political fact accounts, doctrinal treatises, and prayers and eulogies. As also here, the usual ethnic Western literary genre designations of biographical or hagiographical writings do not really cover this immense breadth in form, style, and content are used as has been proposed here in Oxford, also the terminology of life writings. More specifically, at this point in my current project, I focus on the extensive writings of and about the ninth chief abbot of Bhutan, Shakya Rinchen. Today, he's mostly known for having compiled and thereby preserved the works of the eminent Sakya scholar, Shakya Shokten, which Tibetologists had considered lost until their discovery in his monastery Pajodeng, in Bhutan in the 1970s. Also, he had considered himself to be an emanation of Shakyashogden and, as I was able to document in my monograph, implemented important doctrinal concepts into his own intellectual agenda as Drukpa Kavyeu. Apart from the very detailed work of John Adusi, a systematic study of his life and role in identity and nation-building processes in Bhutan and Tibet has not been undertaken, even though he was, in fact, one of the most illustrious figures and outspoken figures in the intellectual scene at that time. Here I consider particularly J. Shakya Rinchen's extensive personal writings, such as two different travelogues of his long stay in Tibet, auto and semi-biographical accounts, biographies of other religious and political figures, his letters and abundant personal notes that are found in his collected works and in other scattered texts. Many of the sources are available via BDRC, but also via the Endangered Archives program at the British Library. Current at, currently, at my work with the Endangered Archives program, I'm looking into the relationship also in mm-hmm. differences between these collections and texts. Beyond the textual sources presented here, I would like to mention that I, of course, very much benefited from Michael Ayres' groundbreaking work that is still very, very relevant due to its historical, philological depth and accuracy, as well as his gift to draw our attention to under-researched sources and topics. He made numerous important Tibetan language historiographical sources accessible in the form of annotated translations, with the original Tibetan text, including priceless footnotes and references to numerous other textual sources from the entire Tibetan cultural area. Moreover, considering his depths of knowledge, I'm very much looking forward to see his personal research notes that are housed in the paper collection at the Botan Library tomorrow, and which I may partially include into my research as well. So we will see how that goes. In sum, The writings of the Ninth chief Abbot Shakerinchen and other Bhutanese Buddhist masters will provide new insights into what role they played in identity and nation-building in Bhutan during the complex and entangled history with Tibet in the 18th century. There's, of course, much more to say about my research project. However, for now, let me pull some strings together and explain this last slide a bit more. Today I addressed how research on Bhutan can play an important role in diversifying our view on the history of the Tibetan cultural area in large and how important it is to include a Bhutan-centered perspective, empirical perspective, into the conversation. I therefore argued for recalibrating the perspective on Tibetan and Himalayan history in harmony with how I personally understand Michael Eros's research ag- agenda. In the first part, I presented the analytical and very theoretical framework that I use for my historical philological work on the empirical materials addressing identity and nation building in Bhutan. Moreover, with that, I wanted to provide food for thought how we scholars in the field of thematology could better participate in transdisciplinary current critical questions of methodology and theory, for example, about emic-etic distinctions, translation, and analytical frameworks that are less un-Eurocentric. Then in the second and third part, I focused on my empirical example of Bhutan that shows how beginning in the 18th century as a crucial time for identity and nation building, as well as a Critical juncture in Bhutanese history, the explicit religious doctrinal self identification with the newly founded Bhutanese Drukpa Kaku school began to transform into what today is the official national identity as Drukpa and as Bhutanese. In detail, I showed how religious doctrinal identity building and socio cultural identity building identity policies. Transcultural exchanges and entanglements in 18th century Bhutan were linked to each other and influenced nation building. My analysis is hereby based on diverse textual sources from different literary genres representing both collective and individual perspectives namely the Bhutanese legal code from 1729 and related historiographical sources, doctrinal writings about the Mahamuja controversy, and life writings addressing the joint Bhutanese-Tibetan travels. In the future, such historical analysis could also enable us to better understand contemporary societal challenges in Bhutan, for example, of religious pluralism and freedom, Drukpa nationalism, or gross national happiness. To conclude, as I laid out today, Bhutan indeed provides a unique historical and analytical setting as its development has been characterized by intense and crucial transcultural encounters with first Asian and later Western nations that influenced its trajectory substantially, but Bhutan was never colonized. Therefore, we can rightly say that Bhutan is still a missing piece in transdisciplinary discourses in area studies, but also global Asian studies beyond Tibetology. On that note, I would like to conclude my talk here, and I'm very much looking forward to your comments and questions now. Thank you.